Hebrews chapter 2. So we got to be able to laugh, right? So we talked at Sunday school class about God's truth and our truth, and there was a song in the first, or a line in the first verse that says, uh, Plant your truth down deep in us. And I said, Plant our truth down deep in us. And so don't plant, God, don't plant our truth, your truth. Sorry. Let me say um, a prayer and then, and then we'll begin. Spirit of God, would you enable me to speak only what you have to say, only what you have already said? And would you open up our hearts to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started Hebrews last week. Uh, and before I can really get into our new passage, I got to get a little bit of a recap from last Sunday. Uh, and also kind of recap a little bit from Sunday night in case you weren't here when we spoke of um, Jesus in comparison to angels. So if you read verse 1, you see a back and forth about the Son and angels. But simply what we learned last week is that, number one, God has spoken, past tense, uh, what he has to say, he's already said it. Um, if you want to know what he said, you have to listen to his son. This is the crux of what we talked about last week. Um, but then we also wanted to understand, why should we listen to the son? And the first chapter in Hebrews, I'm sorry, the first, ver or first paragraph of the first chapter of Hebrews gives us the reasons why we ought to listen to the Son by telling us who the Son is and then the majority of the remaining portion of Hebrews 1 gives Old Testament Scripture to confirm that. And so a few things that we learned about the Son, whom we must listen to, is that He is the Creator of all things. I want to make sure we understand that. When we talk about in the beginning... The Son was there, and not just there, He was creating. And as Creator, He is also possessor of all things, heir of all things. Uh, the Son is the perfect image of God whom we cannot see. He is the perfect image of God and His nature and His glory. The Son, also Creator, upholds all things that He has created by the power of His Word. The Son has purged sin, the first paragraph of Hebrews 1 says. And after making purification for sin... He has, seated, uh, he has seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then the part about the angels comes in. 
the Son, whom we have just described, is superior to angels. Which if you're wondering why does that matter, well, it's because in Jewish history, angels were a big deal. And in Scripture, angels are a big deal. We might just not know as much about them as the Jews did of the time of the writing of this letter. They were such a big deal that there were some, after the ascension of Christ, who were stumbling over Christ because they could not see Him as better than angels. Because angels, by the power of God, don't die. They are created as um, spirit, infinite beings. But then you've got the message of the gospel from the apostles going out saying that Jesus, this person whom they had heard of from Nazareth, is the Son of God. But then there's this little caveat, he died. So then they're thinking, oh, well, how is he going to be, how can he be the Christ? He's not even better than an angel if he is a man who died. But what the writer or preacher of Hebrews is telling us as he lists out that Jesus of Nazareth isn't just a man from Nazareth who died, but he is the Son of God, the creator, sustainer of life, throned forever, enthroned forever and ever, uh, lover of righteousness, hater of wickedness, all things have been submitted under, uh, to him under his rule and authority. He is much superior to angels. He has created angels. He has perfect authority over angels. So then we got to the end of chapter 1 and end of, verse chapter two, or end of chapter 2. And the warning, the message there was, Therefore you must listen to the Son. If you are caught up by the angel and will, and will not listen to the Son, then you are in grave danger. If you are not going to listen to the message of the Son, for He is a better messenger than the angels, and if He is a better messenger, then His message is better, and if you are going to neglect what He has to say, there is no escape for you. His message, as it said in verse 3, is a message of a great salvation. So pay attention. So this morning, we needed to know that in order to continue on as we look at the rest of chapter 2 today. And as I said last week, we have to take... It's, I, I could literally spend two years in Hebrews. It's so chock full of material. But, and, and I'm not good enough to do that, just to let you know. Because we'll get, we'd get lost and sidetracked and... So we're taking bigger chunks of it morning by morning, and then we'll come back and maybe hit some spots we missed in the evening when necessary. So to help us this morning to move forward, and I want to try to do this as often as I can, is I want, I want to give you the title, which I have not done before, but I want to give you the title because to me the title is very important in understanding what this section is going to tell us. And then I want to give you uh, a short two-sentence summary of what we're driving after, what the point of the passage is. And so the title actually comes from verse 10, 
And the title of the sermon is Bringing Many Sons to Glory. Bringing Many Sons to Glory. Now, again, to help us even further, here's the short summary of what I want us to get through or from this passage. And that's, in order for God to bring many sons to glory, the Son of Glory the Son of God, had to lower Himself from glory and become like those He is trying to help. Help is a key word. And He does this by raising them to glory by His death, His fall from glory. His voluntary fall from glory. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So, I'm going to say that a little bit quicker this time. In order for God to bring many sons to glory, the Son of Glory, a.k.a. the Son of God, had to lower Himself from glory and become like those He is trying to help, raising them to glory by or through His death. Now, you're Mike. Yeah, I understand that. We talk about that all the time. I get it. That's familiar. Well, that's... That's fine, and I hope it's familiar. But don't let the familiarity of the truth cause you to miss the the weight and beauty and depth of what I just said, of what this chapter is trying to tell you. That's that's why Hebrews is so good, and that's why this chapter was so difficult for me to, to actually prepare for, is because we could spend weeks on this chapter in things we already think we know, but we could just sit here and take in what God is doing in bringing many sons to glory. And if that's, if, if uh, ladies, that includes daughters as well, just to make sure that you understand that. We're talking about, when we talk of sons, we talk of children of God. Okay, children of God. So to help us navigate through this chapter, the rest of this chapter, we want to ask three questions and we'll only get to two this morning. And we'll get to the third tonight. Number one, what does it even mean to bring many sons to glory? Um, Very important for us to have that base of what we're talking about. Number two, so number one, what does it mean to bring sons to glory number two how does he bring them and number three who is it that he's bringing who are these sons all right so number one what does it mean to bring many sons to glory as a starting point i want us to maybe think about language that's more familiar to us when we think about bringing sons to glory we can use the language that we're most familiar, familiar with, um, salvation, or being saved, right? This is, this is a, this, the type of language that we use when we think about many sons to glory. But I want to be careful because our language um, tends to go, tends to make us, soft 
it tends to cause us to relax. Uh, our language and how we like to express and back and forth about biblical things tends to get a little bit, uh, it tends to make us go away from the weight and gravity and beauty of what is actually happening. Just the word salvation and be and the phrase being saved has become so familiar that if you actually thought about the word salvation, you would realize that's a big deal. Because someone who is being saved is someone who needed to be saved, right? And so it becomes so familiar. So-and-so got saved. So-and-so was saved. I was saved. What it, and we're like, we say it, we say it, we say it. Salvation is blah, blah, blah. What are we talking about? We have to stop and make sure that we just aren't speaking hollow words to one another. But I'll ask this. Are we even having these conversations? Are we even talking about these things together? This is not even a point in the sermon. I just want to press you upon that. Press that upon you. If salvation is such a divine, glorious truth, do we talk about it? Something for us to think about. Uh, so when we think about salvation, we think about being saved. I'm going to try to push forward a little bit faster here. It tends to be personal, individual, individualistic. Uh, we tend to think about it um, as in someone uh, doing something that it was a really important step of their life, right? They, they, they got that part of their life taken care of, and now everything else we can focus on. I've even heard the phrase, uh, let's go ahead and just nail it down. It's, it's way more than that. It's way more than a, like in the military when you, when you accomplish a task or you, you're, you're uh, uh, acknowledged for something you did. You put a badge, you get a, you get a ribbon, whatever the case may be, a medal, and you get to put it on there. And then you get to say, oh, that's, that, I did that. Now I can do something else. That's typically the way in Christianity we talk about salvation. But it's so much more than that. Salvation of mankind is less about the individual. And it's more about, number one, God. And number two, his body. We're not going to be in heaven in our apartments and you got to knock on the door to come in if you want to talk. No, we are going to be around the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are going to be in a... God is building a sanctuary like you have never seen. And we will all be together as the body of Christ. It's not an individualistic thing. Oh, I got my mansion. See me at one, two, three, whatever. It is not that. It's much more. It's, it's, it, salvation is God bringing people out of the world together to worship Him. Exodus is exactly the picture. God doesn't tell Moses to go save everyone so then that they can go and then live their lives. What is the purpose of their exit? 
that they might worship God. He brings them out of bondage in order that he might bring them in as his people. I am your God, he tells them. You are my people. And in that, what does he demand? Worship. Obedience. Trust. Not, I've saved you. Now you go be this, you go be that. We'll do this. You know, maybe call upon me when you need me. No. He is bringing us out of slavery of sin into fellowship, not just with him, but with all who are in Christ. Um, I mean, just, I want to read this passage and I want to push through it. I, I found First Peter really helpful in a, in a sentence that he gives. And I just want to, I, it's really close. So to turn to the right to First Peter chapter 2. So when, what does it mean? What does it mean for God to bring many sons to glory? I think First Peter chapter 2 verse 9, he nails it on the head. In defining bringing many sons to glory. And I keep going, I keep finding myself in First Peter a lot lately, and which, be careful, one of these days we're probably all going to wind up there, here pretty, before too long. What does it mean to bring many sons to glory? And also keep in mind that individualistic aspect of salvation we just spoke of. But you, which is a plural Noun, meaning y'all, right? Y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Now think about this for a second. He starts off by saying you are a chosen race. See, Salvation in Christianity isn't like, I've decided to change my life. I'm going to take the route of Jesus and I'm going to choose him and that's the life I'm going to start living. No. It is this divine aspect of, of and this is the whole point of, of, of Hebrews 2, that you can't come up to God, but he has come down to you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We could just clump that together and say, God isn't your servant, but now that you are God's servant, set apart for him. See, we, we make, I got, you know, I'm getting saved so that God won't send me to hell and he's going to let me into heaven. No, when God truly saves someone, he saves them for his work, for his glory, and he pulls them out of the world and sets them apart for him. Right? And then, and then he says, a people for his own possession. Now, your, yours might say uh, peculiar, but I want you to, that, that word doesn't mean you're weird. It means you are peculiar, peculiarly his. I didn't say it right. Particular. You belong to him. And if you want to say it, we are weird to the world. Because we are his. But look what he, 
salvation isn't because we want to make sure that we've nailed down our eternal destination. This is what it is. That you, y'all, may proclaim the excellencies of Him. Are you ready to do that? Is that what you want to do? Is that how you want to live your life? If you don't, then salvation might not even need to be a word in your vocabulary. Those who are chosen, set apart for the work of God, and I haven't gotten to the best part of it here in the end, those who are called out by God, you cannot contain you cannot contain your calling, and that is to proclaim the excellencies of God. Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And I don't mean called you like he called you on the telephone and you had to answer it. I mean like you're Lazarus in the tomb and Jesus calls you out from the dead the dark into the light, right? That, this is what we're talking about when we get, when we're talking about bringing many sons to glory. So with that, you're like, we haven't even looked at Hebrews yet. Okay, look at verse five. Look at verse five. Let's read five through nine, actually. Um, With first Peter in mind, let's look at verse five through nine. Uh, that, that first Peter is kind of like a, a, a broad perspective, but here we're going to get into some nuts and bolts. So as verse two, uh, verse one of chapter two says, pay much closer attention here. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the sons of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So I want us to keep in mind that our first point here is how, I'm sorry, what? What does it mean that he is bringing many sons to glory? And we have to keep in mind the angel issue as well because it doesn't really make a lot of sense if we, if we push the angel issue aside that people are stumbling over Christ because they don't think he's better than angels. So he starts in five and says, well, hang on a second. Was it not, uh, it wasn't angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, for me, I've, all, I've always had a, a, a struggle with this verse. I didn't have any idea what it meant. Um, but there's two words in the beginning of this verse that really unlock it for you. 
Now, let's reread verse 5, and I'm going to leave the two important words out. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world. What two words did I leave out? To come. So, the beginning of this argument of bringing many sons to glory, the preacher here in Hebrews, he starts thinking about the world to come. Why, what is he, why is he thinking about the world to come? We, he wants to move past the world as we know it and look to the end, talking about something other than how you understand the world now. So what is he talking about? He's talking about God bringing into existence a new world, a better world, a new earth. A kingdom. And this new world, this better world, it is one that is not under a curse. It is one that is without sin and without evil. And God will consume all things that is not a part of this world. That is the world to come. Flip over to chapter 12 of Hebrews. See how it shakes out, pun intended. You'll see what I mean when we read it. Hebrews 12, what, what world is coming and how does this world come and why does this even matter? Verse 25 of Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Sounds a lot familiar to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Pay much close attention to him who's talking. For if they do not escape, well, there it is again. If they do not escape when they refuse him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, the old world. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain, the new world, the world to come. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, back at 28, let, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Ver, uh, you go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Who receives this kingdom? Not angels. Not angels. Now, why does all this matter about angels not receiving this coming, this coming kingdom? Why are they not going to be the ones who are ruling this coming world? Well, he says in verse 6, he says, to help you understand, I'm going to take it back to Psalm 8. And if you're, if, and some of your Bibles might not separate Old Testament quotations. It starts at the beginning of verse, well, he starts to speak about it at the beginning of verse 6. And then all the way halfway through verse 8 is Old Testament Psalm 8. Okay? He goes, let's talk about Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. 
You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay, now he just quoted Psalm 8, which talks about man and angels. So, was it not to angels that God subjected the world to come? That's a rhetorical statement. No, it wasn't. God has made man for a little while lower than the angels. So you're like, what do you mean? Are you as um, powerful as an angel right now? Are you, do you have the capacity to um, live forever? No. Right now, in the hierarchy of spiritual things, you're at the bottom under angels. You have been brought low as people below angels on this old world. So, but if you have any understanding of Psalm 8, you also realize that God isn't just speaking about men through David. Notice he says, what is man that you are mindful of? But this is also speaking about the man to come, Jesus. So, now we're connecting angels, man, and Jesus. Whom hasn't, the name hasn't been spoken yet up to this point in this book. But look what he says. Okay, so let me make sure we understand the psalm. God thinks so much of man that he has, well, he's made him a little lower than the angels for a while, but then what? He will crown him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the, the preacher says, but wait a second. In the middle of verse 8, he says, now wait a second. In putting everything in subjection to his feet, he left nothing out of his control. Still talking about man, right? How many of you controlled uh, the deer in your garden last year? How many of you controlled anything in this world? No. He says, if man has been given subjection over everything, then nothing should be out of his control. And then he says, at the end of 8, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. That's reality. It's not fulfilled yet. But then he switches his understanding of Psalm 8 from man to the coming Son of Man. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while has made man lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now notice something here. In that verse and what the psalmist said, what David said in Psalm 8, that man has been crowned with glory and honor. Well, we just realize that you and I, we have no glory and honor in this world as it stands. But God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Not only did he send him forth, but he made him, what? Lower than the angels for a little bit. But it didn't last, did it? That upon his death, he received 
glory and honor. Now, I've got away from my notes, so let me kind of come back in here. So what, is, what does it mean for God to bring many sons to glory? It means that you and I and all mankind were low on the totem pole. Because at, but it didn't start that way. We've got to understand that. Adam, what did God tell Adam? Have dominion over all creation. Rule over it. And he was king over the world he lived in. And then what happened? He, he fell for uh, wisdom that was short of God. See, we talked in Sunday school about the wisdom of man being less than the wisdom of God. That was even going on in the garden. Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan with his Wisdom and cunning. And in, in taking a bite of the sin, or in taking a bite of the fruit and, and disobedience to God, Adam fell as king of, of, of the world that he had been, had been appointed by God. He had fallen from being the king to being a slave. And he no longer had dominion over all things. But you know what had dominion over him? Death. At that moment, he no longer ruled the world, but death ruled him. And not only him, but all who are to come after him. So how do you restore? That's what bringing many sons to glory is. Restoring the kingship, the, the, the righteous reign of God's creatures over God's cre uh, creation. And the only way for that to happen is for the son of glory to lay aside his glory, be made a little while lower than the angels, and then die as a man. Look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 5. So how is God bringing these sons to glory? It begins with the son. And it follows by his death. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be, to be grasped. He set it aside. He let it go. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The bringing of many sons to glory begins with the death of the son. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of, it, uh, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's why we can say in Hebrews 2, 
that we see him, Jesus, for a little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the greatest news of all time. And this is it. That God humiliated himself unto death for you. Now, understand this. God cannot die, right? And so he had to become like you in order to die. So how, I've gotten too far here. I want, this is how. We've gone past the what and we're to the how. How has God bringing many sons to glory? He is doing it by the death of his son. And he is calling us all to look at the son. We have to look at the son. You see, the only way to escape the danger that is before us, the only way to not be shaken when God shakes up this old world and brings about the new, the only way to escape is to look at the Son and see what God has done. The Son, Jesus Christ, reveals to you exactly who God is. He reveals to you exactly what God has done. When you look at the Son, you see His death. You see Him like you, and it tells you something. What does it tell you? It tells you, first and foremost, that your sin is a serious problem. It's so serious that the Son of God, who is enthroned forever and ever, set aside His glory, needed to put on flesh, not just needed to put on flesh, but die a sacrificial death to cover your sin. Verse 14, look at verse 14 in chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, the, the Son, Likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See that? Through the, the death of the Son, he sets you free from the slavery of death, of the devil. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. How does the son bring many sons to glory? Not just by setting you free from death, but satisfying the wrath of God for your sin. And the last way that the Son 
brings many sons to glory is in verse 18. But also, it's also throughout the rest of this book of Hebrews. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So let me back up and and kind of organize this mess for you a little bit. Number one, what does it mean for God to bring many sons to glory? It means for him to restore man above the angels, not just restore them, but to bring them into his eternal presence to rule and reign the cre- the God's creation with him. How does he do it? He does it by the death of his son to set you free from death, to satisfy the wrath of God, but also he does it as using his son, sending his son as a high priest to keep you. When Jesus brings many sons to glory, he brings them all the way to glory. It says, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Answer me this question. What day of your life are you not being tempted? Now, I also want you to understand that I'm not going to go too far into this theme because the theme of Jesus being our helper as our high priest will we'll come across it many more times in this book. But I do want to point out one of them in verse seven or chapter seven. If God is bringing you to glory, He brings you all the way. The train has no stops. When He picks you up at justification, He takes you all the way to glory. Look what, he does. Look what he does in verse 25. Look what it says he does in verse, I'm uh, sorry, yes, 25. Consequently, now, let's just read it. Consequently, he, Jesus, the Son, is able to save to the uttermost. How far is the uttermost? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, bringing many sons of glory through Him, since He always lives. Now let's make sure of this. Do you know that the Son is alive today? And He lives for the rest of eternity as Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man. He lives for this one purpose, to make intercession for them. Who is them? The many sons of glory. Now, I just want to make sure you understand what that word intercession means, what that idea uh, means. God, the Son of God is seated at the right hand of the throne of God with the Father. And he is there not not making excuses for your sin, but he is there as a daily 
minute by minute, second and second reminder to the Father that your sins are forgiven. He sits there with the Father, nails in hand and feet, pierced side as your sacrifice that covered your sin, but also as a reminder that you are counted righteous because he has risen from the dead and those who believe in him not only have been forgiven, but have been counted righteous because of the resurrection of the dead. And so he sits there today making sure that the Father sees that you are covered and counted righteous. And so when he brings many sons to glory. He brings them all the way to glory. And so, what you have to understand is if you're on the train, you've got to, you're on the train. You're going. And if you're not on board and you're like, mm, I don't know about today, then you aren't on the train. I'm speaking in... <laughs> Are you going in the same direction as God is? He's on His way to glory. And He's taking the sons and daughters with Him. And if you're going with Him, I guess this is what I'm trying to say. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Now, before we close, I want to give you something to think about this week and every day of your life. If, no, no, no. Since, I'm talking to you, Christian, since God is bringing you to glory, since He is bringing you into the presence of the Father, to reign and rule with Him in the world to come, since He has done this by His death, since He has delivered you from death, since He has uh, set you apart, how then shall you live? Last thing I want us to see is in Hebrews chapter 12. Again, a reference we'll make many times over the next few weeks. since the Son of God has come down in order to bring you up, how then shall you live? Number one, in verse one of chapter 12, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's what, I, that's, what, that's what I wanted to say. If that's not you, you're not on the train. That's what I meant to say. If you are not trying to shed every sin and weight that feels like you're weighing down the train, if you're not trying to put sin to death, you are not headed to glory. That doesn't mean you're perfect. If someone comes up to you or you've gone up to someone and says, I have a new relationship with Jesus and He has saved me, the question I would want to know is, well, how is your relationship with sin now? 
Because if you have a relationship with Jesus, if He is bringing you to glory, your relationship with sin changes instantly. Drastically. Think today. Think today about your coming week. You know your own temptations. Don't don't try to hide it. You know how you're tempted. If it's lust, pride, envy, gossip, stop and think about what God is doing. And He is bringing you to glory. And it doesn't matter how difficult it is to fight that temptation. It is far better. It is far better to be brought into the presence of God through the Son. And it is something that we are waiting for in anticipation and hope. Think about the glory He is bringing you to and understand that glory is far better than any temporary satisfaction. And last, for everyone who is waiting this hope, verse 3 in 12, verse 3 in chapter 12, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? Why did he do that? For you? So that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Christ has done all this that you might not grow weary and faint-hearted, waiting for His return, waiting for the new world. If you keep your eyes on Christ, on His glory, and that He died to bring you into that glory, nothing in this world will drag you down because you are waiting to rule over a new world with Christ our King. Struggle at work? It's not enough to take away the hope that you have in Christ. You're struggling struggling financially? Just remember that you have the riches of eternal blessing waiting for you in, in, in heavenly places. And death? Death is no longer an enemy, but is your friend. Because the Son died in your place and defeated death. Much more, much more than that, He was raised from the dead. And so this morning we turn to the table.